This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode has a disclaimer that it is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It is based on my years of experience in the coding and billing industry. It is based on my research and my thoughts alone. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host today. Our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Institute. Ozark Institute is an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. As always, our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. And if you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. We're so happy you're here. Please hit that subscribe button, follow us, Get the word out. Let everyone know about Life as a Coder and how much you love listening to it every week. We want to keep bringing you these great episodes, insights into the healthcare industry, the business of healthcare, and how we can all improve in patient care and as well as getting our physicians paid, right? I love what I do. And as you can see, you heard last week what we talked about with Crystal, my special guest, the thought of becoming a medical coder. I love this industry. I love being a medical coder, but I know that's not all that I do. I know that my, my job is so much more than being a coder. It's a small piece of what we do in the revenue cycle. And so today I wanted to share a little bit more about that piece. So you coders out there that are new, getting your feet wet in the industry, you get in that first job so you don't feel stuck and you don't feel like I went to school to be a coder and that's, that's all I want to do. Uh, you're prepared for what you do have to know going into that first job. And one of those things is understanding the insurance industry, understanding the payer guidelines, understanding specifically the LCD policies, the local coverage determinations. And we realize that there are a lot of things out there that we may not know or maybe not know where to go to find the information. So today I'm going to talk about LCD policies. This is season five, episode 15. The who, what, why, where, when, and how of LCD policies. The barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and clerical issue. I want to thank OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. This optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time a patient must wait. The platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and electronic medical record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Off-parency reports can be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. 
direct insurance verification, and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to authparency.com. That's www.authparency.com. And get started today with this amazing tool. Now, the first thing I like to talk about when I educate on a certain topic is where can you find the information for yourself, right? Because it's one thing for me to tell you, um, that's not really going to help you much. You need to learn how to do your own research because guess what, guys? I'm not going to be there by your side in your office coding with you, right? So you're going to need to know things. Where do I find information? And my provider asks me, why did you code it this way? Where did you get this information? You can back it up, right? Now, I wanted to kind of split this up and just kind of really quickly explain the websites, right? So you might research things and you might come across two different websites at certain times. One is medicare.gov and one is cms.gov, right? So medicare.gov, as you can see when you go there, has great information about what they cover, what a statutorily excluded service is, where they never cover it. And it's also the website where patients go, right, to actually get their Medicare coverage. And there's information on there specifically for patients. And believe it or not, Medicare is very transparent with their patients. They do tell them where they can go, what they can do if they have a grievance and they want to appeal something or they want to express their thoughts and, and maybe help change their policy. Those are things that they can do right there on the Medicare's website. There's even a spot where they can actually write in if they have an opinion or a thought on a local coverage determination policy. So there's an actual page on that website on Medicare.gov that gives them instructions on where to write to, what to put in that, that letter. And they can, of course, um, have someone on their behalf, someone who has more experience in this area, do this for them um, and have a representative help them with that. But that's very interesting, right? Maybe you don't know if you're a Medicare patient yourself and you also work in the healthcare industry. Maybe you didn't know that you could do that. So we were putting that information in our show notes. And I do encourage you to do all your research on both websites, actually. It's really good to understand the coverage that your patients do have. Or if you are a code or a biller, you may have Medicare yourself. Or you also may have a family member and that asks you questions from time to time about their coverage and understanding their EOBs and understanding their their denials that they get from their from their insurance company. So all these things can bring us back to these websites and we can do our research and be really good advocates for patients and also for our physicians. So then I want to talk about, of course, CMS.gov, right? So CMS.gov, that of course is where we find the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It's going to explain a little more about the coverage process and all the ins and outs and the policies. Whenever we get a final rule from Medicare, we look at the proposed rule right now. We're going to be looking forward to the final rule later in the year on updates for the following year, what they've decided to cover. Um, of course, the coverage information as far as payment rates and things like that, that we look at, right? Um, and your administrators of hospitals and your directors, those in the finance area are really concerned with that part, right? So they can explain to their physicians why they're of course, getting paid a certain amount, why the rates are going up or down, and things like that. But part of the piece of the puzzle is always the coverage, right? Because we know, and most physicians know, that their patients, most of the time, if they have Medicare, they're Medicare age, or they have Medicaid, and maybe they're low income, and that's why they got approved for Medicaid, 
uh, or maybe they have a certain condition that qualifies for them for that, they can't afford to pay a direct pay provider, right? We know direct pay providers are popping up all over the place. And I think it's a great thing if you want to bypass insurance, avoid the deductibles, and all the all the red tape you have to go through, and you can afford to go to a direct pay provider. But I say do it. It's great. You know, you can get that provider's care that you need, and you can have that, right? But there are certain services that just aren't, at this point in time, possible, right? We have to have this ability to help our patients get coverage. And the average Medicare patient is not going to say, hey, yeah, I want a knee replacement or a hip replacement. That's what, close to $80,000 when things are all said and done between the hospital and the physician. And they're going to pay out of pocket for that. Uh, The average Medicare patient is going to not be able to do that, right? Which is why they purchase, they pay monthly their premiums for these policies, whether it is traditional Medicare or if it's a MAO plan a um, Medicare Advantage organization uh, that provides uh, Medicare coverage, right? And so those are things that we need to know when we go into um, the office or the hospital as a coder or a biller in the revenue cycle. We need to understand the process and, and what we what sites we go to, where information we get to back up our claims. And when I teach appeals and denials, I always encourage people to get to know these policies because if you get a denial and you know that policy well enough, you can identify in that denial that it's not, a, it's not really valid, right? You can use their own policies against them, um, and you can prove that you, you do have the correct documentation. You send that over. You explain in the policy they have. It states this, in this, this page, this paragraph. And then you can say, in our report, we detailed this in here. This is, this is where we say this. And then that appeal uh, contractor... And the contractor that's looking at that appeal um, can say, okay, I see this and this, and they can hopefully, you know, make that happen. And there are a lot of things that, you know, are happening in the industry. Uh, Recently, I read an article, and believe it or not, it came from the OIG, the Office of Inspector General. And they are paying attention, everyone. They're paying attention to this issue. They discovered, right, that some Medicare Advantage organizations, these MAO plans, are denying authorization requests for Medicare beneficiaries. And that's a problem, right? You know, Medicare has said, we approve these procedures, right? There's, they give it a fee, right? They attach the fee to this procedure. And they do have criteria. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? So you're going to find when you go on Medicare's website, there is a NCD, the National Coverage Determination, and an LCD, Local Coverage Determination. So when they look at these things, now these, these MAOs, these Medicare Advantage organizations, will at times have criteria and require you to obtain a prior authorization. This gives them time to look at the procedure, look at the order you send, look at the records, and say, okay, you say this is medically necessary, this is our criteria, and most of the time, they do base it off of the actual traditional Medicare coverage determination if they have a policy on it. Now, not all procedures uh, that are covered by medic- traditional Medicare do have a policy. So you could type in a procedure code, for instance, um, in on Medicare's website, and it'll tell you if there's a policy. But maybe that MAO plan decides that they want to look at the actual um, status of that procedure, what it is, what they do during that, what are the actual indications for that. What does the research show, right? And they claim to have done their research and maybe have a provider, a retired physician, or maybe they have physicians on staff that help them 
make these policies, which does happen. I will tell you, it does happen. I, I've talked to people and I know that it does occur at these, these plans. They do have physician access to get this criteria. And not all physicians may agree. Maybe there's emerging technology that's coming or uh, effective techniques that have been proven and you can show that. So those things can happen. But denying these routinely and having and not really um, understanding the fact that the physician is saying this is this is accurate, this is something that should be covered. And maybe your physician doesn't know that they can have a say in that. They can help create these policies. Um, they can write in and these open meetings that they have, they can actually affect that change. But at the end of the day, when they did this research, the OIG did find Medicare Advantage organizations were sometimes delaying or denying the patients access to things that did meet the Medicare coverage rules. And if you look at some of their policies, let's say, for instance, you go on United Healthcare or you go on Humana and their policies, most of the time, they do fall in line on paper, so to speak. So on their website, they do read the way that the Medicare policies read. So um, technically, on paper, they should have been covering these things, right? And so the research has shown these prior authorization requests that were denied or delayed really were inaccurate. And so that's what the investigation showed at the end of the day. I'm going to post that article um, in our show notes so you can read through it. Um, It just provides some additional backup to the fact that we are in this era of burden on our physicians. Um, They're burdened down by these things. And we can be their advocates, and we should be their advocates, right? I'm a huge advocate for my surgeons. I've had some great relationships that I've built over the years. As many of you know, I I talk about I've been in orthopedics for the majority of my career. So um, I have a lot of knowledge and experience in that area when it comes to not even not just the reimbursement areas, but even the clinical side. I have spent a lot of time with orthopedic surgeons. I have spent time learning from them. I've asked them for their, for their thoughts, and I, I wanted to, to learn. I want to be by their side learning from them. And not that I wanted to go to medical school, but there's so much that I could learn from them that will help me in my job. And I've had the privilege, and I, I love talking about the fact that my surgeon, love him to death, Dr. Heim, uh, my first surgeon I worked for in orthopedics, uh, he asked me if I wanted to come in the OR with him and watch him do surgery. And I was just like, what? Like, am I allowed to do that? So it was a great experience. I got to scrub in, be there in the OR, see what they go through, all of the things that make up actually preparing for a surgery and performing that surgery. I could see what he was doing. So as he was documenting, I could confirm, yes, I saw with my own eyes he was doing these things. And and I paid attention and I, I learned these techniques and the approaches and all of these things that are in the, the documentation. So that was a great experience for me. And it opened my eyes to the fact that what these surgeons do is truly amazing. Opening up the human body, fixing things, improving the quality of life for a patient. Even if they're Medicare age, they're, you know, getting older, uh, you know, they have this ability to give them a better quality of life for the life they have left. And it's an amazing thing when you see what surgeons do to help patients continue living and then also to improve the quality of life. And with that, you know, for the most part, these policies are created with evidence-based fact that is out there. But if there is more that needs to be communicated to these organizations, they have the ability to allow you to do that. I am going to put in my show notes um, some Q&As um, on 
the LCD process that you go through. But based on the Social Security Act, it's defined an LCD policy, a local coverage determination. This means, according to that, of course, Security Act, a determination by a fiscal intermediary or a carrier under Part A or Part B, so either inpatient facility coverage or your outpatient physician coverage, respecting whether or not a particular item or service is covered on an intermediary or carrier-wide basis under such parts in accordance with this, of course, Security Act. So that's a basic definition, but they get deeper into it and they talk about more of that in that Q&A document. All these questions you might have, right? Um, and you have on their website too, when you, when you go to your local MAC carrier, your Medicare regional contractor website. Um, so I'm in the Novitas region, that's our regional contractor. Maybe you're on the West Coast in that area and you have Noridian, or maybe you're in another area, maybe in Florida, you have First Coast. So you have different regional contractors. And so they have on their website, and I will, of course, link this as well, is their upcoming meetings. And so I think it's so important that we know about these meetings. Now, we just missed one yesterday. Today, of course, I'm recording this is April 29th. But yesterday on the 28th, uh, we had um, one for the, the Novitas webinar for certain um, items. And there's a teleconference coming up on May 9th. So you haven't missed it yet. So if you are in the Palmetto, JM, or JJ region, so you should know your region. So always investigate um, on, on there, your region. There is a meeting. And when you open up that PDF, they're going to give you a link. So whether you are in the JM region or the JJ region of Palmetto, you're going to click on that link. And it's going to take you, of course, to that page on the Medicare Max website. They're going to explain to you about these LCD development meetings that they have to develop local coverage determinations for processing Medicare claims. And it's really important that we know about these things. It's very helpful, right? To understand how we can um, be there and affect change in this area. And on their website, they say, we will periodically host these meetings to discuss the scientific evidence underlying these proposed LCDs and that interested parties within this jurisdiction can attend and orally present information related to these. Uh, but you do have to submit your oral comments through a formal process. And then they also have information there on where to submit your comments. So they have email addresses that you can send to, and they tell you what to include in your request and the criteria, of course. They tell you how to submit that. And then they tell you what will happen next. They're going to review the materials received within 60 calendar days and determine whether it can be complete or incomplete. Um, and then they're going to respond in writing to your request. And so once this has been complete and approved and they say, yes, we're going to look at this, then you'll be contacted. Um, and there will be an open meeting, as mentioned, to allow you the opportunity to present comments and or concerns regarding the proposed LCDs. So always do your research. Make sure you're available and that you can have access to those open meetings if you would like. And then the comment period, you know, you'll be able to see when they release those comments Later, on the previous meetings, you'll be able to see the comments, what was decided, what they said, what their decision was, and, and things like that. So upcoming on May 9th, they do have their issues and topics, what they're going to talk about, which is the allogenic hematopoietic cell transplantation for primary refractory or relapsed Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So if you work in that field, that might be an interesting one for you, right? And then also bone mass measurement. 
You're also going to talk about CTs of the abdomen and pelvis, and you orthopedic coders out there, you, you physicians also, the hyaluronic acid injections for knee osteoarthritis. And we're also going to talk about the percutaneous vertebral augmentation, the PVAs, for osteoporotic vertebral compression fractures. You podiatrists out there, surgical treatment of nails, and for GI, uh, my GI coders out there, upper GI endoscopy and visualization updates. So those are great topics. So you definitely do not want to miss the May 9th meeting, um, that teleconference. So definitely check that out. It's going to be something you're definitely going to want to um, participate in. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, you're a coder, you're a biller, you're trying to find justification. Maybe you're trying to do some research and be proactive like I always preach, right? You know your top procedures that you code every day, right? So let's say you're in orthopedics. You know your physician routinely will order a knee scope or they're going to order a knee replacement, a hip replacement. Those procedures, you have a list of your common procedure codes, right? We ran a report and the best thing to do honestly is Get a report of the previous calendar year. What are the codes you build, right? Make a list of those. Make a, a reference document for yourself. I'm a spreadsheet girl. I live on data. So I create these. I create my most common procedures, right? And then I have a column that tells me, okay, Medicare, Blue Cross, United Healthcare, whatever, right? Is there a policy on this code, right? And then I have a date, revision date. So I know the most recent date that it has been revised so I can be accurate, right? So if you go to the LCD by state report for Medicare, again, I'm going to give you the, the website to go to to keep all yourselves organized. You have your coverage policy number, what it is, right? So it can identify what it might cover the topic. It's going to give you the contractor. So which contractor has a policy on this? Now, for instance, I'm looking at the first one that pops up is the 3D interpretation and reporting of imaging studies. So... I have two contractors here, Novitas and First Coast. So my region and here in the South and then also the First Coast for Florida. It tells me the effective date. So it was in 2019 for both of these and last updated was later in the year in 2019 and it's still active. So nothing's happened to this policy since 2019. So any of my dates of service that I've had between now and then, um, they would have been, of course, active and, and it, would, it would apply to those codes, right? So I can, I can open that policy. Let's say I want to see which codes are applicable to this policy. I'm going to open the policy. And I always say, before you even look for the codes that are part of this policy, please, please, please read through this policy. Understand every single piece of it. So the first thing you're going to find is the reference, right? Where in the Medicare Internet-only manual, the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual, Integrity Manual, are they going to... Um, showed the backup for this LCD, right? They're going to have it somewhere where you can reference. They have references for the Social Security Act, standard references on routine physical examinations, payment policies that are, are going to affect this LCD policy, right? And from the Federal Register, snippets of references there where you can find where they went from the Federal Register, right? References there. They're going to give you history and background on this policy. Where did this come from, right? And then where do they consider covered indications? Read through that. So you can express to your provider, when they decide that the patient needs this, this is what, the, what Medicare has researched, what they believe should be an indication for you to order this. Do you agree, right? Most of the time they will. Sometimes they may have an alteration of that. But this gives them insight, right, into the payer. And they can even look at it and say, okay, well, maybe I need to word it this way. 
Um, maybe the way I'm wording it is misleading, but at the end of the day, if you know that your physician, if you know enough about terminology and you know enough about that, our physicians don't necessarily have to change the way they document because most of the time, I'm going to tell you, from my experience, what they say correlates to what the coverage guidelines say. It's just maybe you don't know that because you don't know how to interpret medical terminology or uh, documentation. So it's there the whole time, but you didn't know how to interpret it. So learn that. Learn what they say and what it means. These medical terms are interchangeable and you need to be aware of that. And they're going to give you limitations too, you know, what it's not going to be covered for, what you have, you're limited by. Utilization guidelines, right? How often can they have this done? Those things like that. And they have, of course, where they got some of this information. So they cite their bibliography, right? Where those citations came from, the American College of Radiology. So if you belong to an organization and you want to know where did they get this information, did they check AAOS? Did they check this organization? According to the policy, they referenced it. So you can back your, back it up and go to that organization and say, okay, is this what they said? You can confirm it um, and go, go from there, right? So that will be what you can use to justify that policy, right? And then when you go, you can see all the revisions and you can go down to the very bottom to the associated documents, which is where we want to be as coders. The first thing we want to do is read through that policy, understand it, right? So we can educate our providers. Then we come down to the billing and coding articles, right? And they give us a couple, right? Um, they give us a, a revision document. Then we give we have the billing and coding document, which is what we want. So that's the one I, I would click on if I want to see, okay, I know these are the procedure codes I'm going to be billing, and then I need to know what diagnosis codes are approved for those sets of procedures. And as you go through these policies, you'll see similar wording, similar information from the previous full policy um, they've brought over into the coding and billing document. So for instance, they're going to have a group of codes. The first group might include a couple different procedure codes, and then they're going to give you underneath that what supports medical necessity as far as a diagnosis code. So they'll say the following ICD-10 codes support medical necessity for CPT codes, this, this, and this, right? And must be accompanied by a specific diagnosis. And now sometimes they'll tell you too a specific order. They may say this, this diagnosis code needs to be on the claim first, followed by one of the following um, as a secondary diagnosis. So that's applicable there. Um, this is a specific uh, policy, right? So that's what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm coding these these radiology codes. I need to know what's covered and so forth. So that's one of the things that I would look at. Now, well, that was just an example, the very first one I came across. But let's say that I'm like really concerned and I want to see all of the ones that I need, right? And I want to look on a specific LCD. And you can filter by active if you want to look at a previous one, right? Um, or if you just want to look at your state, you can filter by your state. So if I'm Arkansas, I want to filter by my region. Um, I want to know which region I am, and I want to apply that filter so I can see what's currently um, a policy for me. And so for me, for instance, I used to work in gastroenterology, general surgery. So whenever they came up with a diagnostic colonoscopy policy back in 2021, I know we're all floored, right? So for years, we didn't have a policy on colonoscopies, right? Our surgeons could order a colonoscopy for just traditional abdominal pain, any kind of pain, right, in that area, right? And so 
I preach for years to my surgeons, you know, it would be a little nice if you could tell me the quadrant, right? And because of what I know, I've talked to you in the past, I would say I've talked to you and you've expressed to me, when you look at a patient, um, you're looking at the quadrant of their, their abdomen, right? Because what do we know is that each quadrant identifies maybe where a certain organ is, right? So if they have pain in the right lower quadrant, they're going to be able to say, okay, it could possibly be this organ that is involved. So they're going to decide what test to do, right, based on where that pain is. Um, so that's important, right? So if it's a colonoscopy, evidence-based would indicate that if it's in a certain quadrant, that would indicate maybe the colon is involved. And so that would be evidence-based criteria for an indication. So in comes this new policy. And this is what we see when we go to L38812, our local coverage. And this is for Novitas um, for my region. You may not have it in your region, but I'm picking on mine for the Novitas region. So when I first discovered this, and of course, like I mentioned, I advised everyone to get those updates. So you know when an LCD policy is revised, it's new, maybe it's retired, so you want to know that. So this particular policy was effective March 21st of 2021, and there are no revision dates at this time. It's a little recent, right? I have my internet-only manual references on endoscopies and digestive system, right? I go down to my covered indications, what they consider medically necessary and reasonable for colonoscopy. And there's a lot of criteria here. We know a lot of things um, Medicare in general covers for screenings, right, for colon cancer. So those, some of those things, those evidence-based things are in there. Limitations, right, um, what they can be utilized for. And they cite a lot of information, you guys. Their summary of evidence, it is very detailed, from the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy Standards Practice Committee, published their recommendation. So if you are a GI physician and you're wanting to know why this was created, you can go to your organization and blame them, right? They created this information, their recommendations for this, and this is where it came from. So you're going to now see, okay, well, my organization decided this is important, as a physician, as a surgeon, I know how important this is, right? Maybe it's in your head, but maybe it doesn't always get on paper, right? Or in nowadays, it doesn't get into the EMR. We know you're busy and you have a lot in your plate. You have a lot of patients to see. And in a future episode, of course, we will be talking about process improvements that you can make in your clinics and your facilities um, to help alleviate some of that, help where so you can focus and have more attention for your patients. But when it comes down to it, we live in a system where we do have to respect our patients want to use their insurance, right? They pay for this policy. They want it. They need it. They can't afford to pay out of pocket for the surgery, so they have their insurance. You know they need it, right? They're not going to pay out of pocket. It's just not going to happen. So you have to live within these guidelines. If you're going to accept that insurance, you're going to go with it, you're going to accept the payment that they give you, then you are going to, of course, accept the patient needing this, and they're, you're going to do that. Most of you physicians out there understand, and you do your best to live within these guidelines, uh, and you understand the system we live in is what we live in, right? So you're going to do your best, and you're going to see where this information comes from. But if you have opinions, and you have medical-backed data that you want to share, please, by all means, we need you physicians, we need you surgeons advocating for these patients. Um, use the, the tools you have. Use your voice as a surgeon, as a physician, to help patients get the care they need. It's really important. So again, I'm going to go down to my billing and coding document that I want to look at. 
They also have a document, which I always recommend looking at, which is the response to comments. So when this was created, they documented every comment that was given, whether it was a physician or another representative that had a comment on this, they documented that, right? Because it's all about documentation. Anything that was mentioned about it, they wanted everyone to know what was said and their response to it so that you can look at that. And then you can go to, of course, the building and coding documents and you can scroll down, same information, a lot of it is there. The coding guidance, the documentation requirements that they would expect to see, right? Um, they always give that. And so that's helpful too. Whenever you're trying to decide what is the documentation requirements for this set of procedures, you can go to the LCD policies and they will oftentimes give you that in the coding and billing document. So in that first group of codes, if there's, if there's just one group, you're going to see all the colonoscopy codes, which will be maybe your diagnostic and it'll include your surgical types as well. Um, and, and so forth. You're going to see all those. Then underneath it, of course, your group one codes. It's going to say the following ICD-10 codes support medical necessity for the following CPT codes. And you're going to scroll through there. And I like to, of course, there's cancer, there's neoplasms, there's the colon polyps that are um, the adenomas, right? Crohn's disease is there. Obviously, that's a, a covered indication. Pretty straightforward there. But a lot of times we've seen them ordered for things like abdominal pain, right? Um, and so we go through there and we look for that. I'm going, I'm scrolling through, right? And this first happened, I was like, what options do I have in my symptom area and my R codes? Because that was most of the time what I had before to code whenever I got a colonoscopy to report. And as you're going to see, uh, you're not going to see R10.9. It's not there, guys. We do not want unspecified codes reported on claims. It's not a new concept. Medicare advised years ago, right after we got ICD-10 guidelines, they, of course, gave us some time to get used to that, get comfortable with it, and they put out there, we are going to be cracking down on unspecified codes because we know you documentarians, you know what part of the body you're working on, right, or what you're concerned about. Give us that specific body part. Code was created by the CDC for a reason, to identify the specific region of the body that's being affected. So which quadrant of the abdominal area is it? Or is it generalized? So we have the option for a generalized abdominal pain. So if it's not a specific area, just kind of all over the place and you, the patient can't really tell you where it is or you can't really identify that, right? Because the patient's telling you where they hurt, right? <laughs> I hurt here, but it's also here and here. And so it's like, you really can't identify that. So you're going to call it generalized. That's a good word, right? Now, there are some unspecified codes in the policy that are applicable, like diarrhea is unspecified. You can, you can use that code. So I recommend if you work for a GI physician, a GI surgeon, a general surgeon, show them the policy. Say for colonoscopies, read through this, just get it, you know, you could print it out, maybe laminate it for them, um, and they can kind of look at it. Um, when I was even teaching my physician's evaluation and management overview, I would actually, they actually had the um, audit sheet, the MDM table, taped right in front of their computer, on the wall. They had the stand-up computers, right? So they, on the wall, they had these uh, sheets there, taped there. And as they were documenting, they would look at it and make sure they, they kind of correlated their, their level to what it would be accurate. And also, you can give them these LCD policies. You can just print out the diagnosis part, Right. Um, so if they're doing a colonoscopy or they're going to order one, you can say, okay, these are the covered indications. Please document something like this. And that's helpful, right? 
And most of the time, the information is there, like I said, but you have to learn how to pick it out. But just saying abdominal pain on the order is not going to cut it. And sometimes what's given on the order to the facility is not even accurate to the documentation. Maybe the physician did get more specific and your tech or your medical assistant just threw one out there and didn't didn't look for the one that's in the chart uh, that was documented correctly. And so that can happen as well, where it gets sent to the hospital as an order and then they maybe try to authorize it and they get denied because it's not one of the covered indications. Or these insurance companies will say on their prior authorization criteria, they may have specific codes that they will only approve it for or conditions and they want specificity. They are cracking down on this. And, you know, even commercial payers are now paying more attention to ICD-10 guidelines, which usually before was a coder's job, right? But they have coders at their facilities, at their company. Blue Cross Blue Shield has coders on staff. Um, these companies do have coders that work in the risk adjustment area. They work in trying to facilitate accurate documentation and reporting, right? So even now... Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield has said they are looking deeper at excludes one and excludes two. So as a coder, we know in our coding conventions what that means. We know that if it excludes one code, it means it's never going to be applicable at the same time as this code we're looking at. They would never be mutually exclusive. They wouldn't be coded together in most instances. And then you have your excludes two, which may be coded, right? If this actually exists, may not be typical, but it could exist. And so those are things that they're looking at. If you ha- if you code these diagnosis codes together, they're paying attention to those guidelines to identify, well, this isn't really typical. You shouldn't really have, you know, reported these together. It doesn't make sense. And they're going to flag those. You're going to reject, maybe deny, and you're going to have to make a correction or revisit your documentation. So think about those things. Think about how what we document affects not only your payment, but the patient. So think about this. You're a surgeon, you're a physician, you order a knee replacement, a hip replacement. It's very typical for a surgeon to send the patient to a pulmonologist, cardiologist, primary care physician to get clearance for a surgery, right? They need to see the reasons for that surgery. They need those indications that they're going to look at that. They're going to look at these conditions. And on that side of the coin, that physician is going to document their findings and report that back to the orthopedic surgeon, right? Whether or not they're cleared. They're going to examine them and do all of that. And that piece of documentation should be accurate as well because it's going to go back to that surgeon to give them that information. If anything's missing or reported inaccurately, it could really affect the patient not even getting the procedure or even their carry down the line. Um, We have this thought that I've heard from some auditors out there that I disagree with, and I'm going to say why. Uh, It's been expressed to me by clinics that have reached out to me to have us do their auditing that previous auditors have told them that they shouldn't be reporting or documenting all of these chronic conditions because they're not treating them that day. And my brain just exploded because I'm like, what? You have to separate your diagnostic coding guidelines from your evaluation and management guidelines. And this goes directly down and it affects the patient, right? Because when you think about, we know the coding guidelines, yes, an orthopedic surgeon may not be treating the diabetes unless it's related to a musculoskeletal condition, right? Or they may not be treating a cardiovascular condition unless it's affecting, maybe it's a vascular type of orthopedic condition, right? Or it's a vascular situation. Uh, but what happens if they need to order a knee replacement 
they document those chronic conditions because in their risk area, they say the risk to the patient having this procedure is this, this, and this. Because they know if they have a major procedure by clinical standards or a minor procedure, if they identify the risk to that patient either having the procedure or not having it, may be great or small, but they're going to document those risks. And they can document those because they have also documented these chronic conditions like diabetes, CKD, hypertension. And so while we are not coding those in the diagnosis area of that visit because that's not the reason they were there, those conditions do have a bearing on their uh, risk to having a procedure or not having it. Or maybe to order a test, right? They need to do that. Or maybe they need to order a prescription, prescribe something. Remember that in that moderate level of evaluation management, they can prescribe a medication and count that. They can monitor something. They're going to document some indication onto why they're either prescribing, updating, revising, whatever they're doing, or maybe discontinuing a medication. For instance, ibuprofen can be prescribed by orthopedic physicians. It's an NSAID, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, right? So they can prescribe that in a higher dose, maybe 800 milligrams, which I've been given myself before. Uh, I prefer that sometimes over the higher narcotics for pain when I, had a, when I had a minor procedure. So they will give me that, right? And I know from my research and what's happened to me by, you know, if I am on it too long, what my body does, right? If a patient has like diabetes or these other conditions, or maybe a condition where there may be a higher risk for a, a complication if they're on this NSAID, there are risks to them, right? And there's always risk, right? The pharmacy will hand you that paper that says these are the risks to taking this medication. So just because you can get it over the counter doesn't mean that the fact that they're just prescribing it is a low visit versus a moderate visit, right? A prescription that they are prescribing, giving you a script for, just because you can get it over the counter doesn't mean that what they're giving you isn't a prescription. It is a prescription. They're writing a script. There is a reason they have to write a prescription for you because this particular medication requires it. And it's a higher risk to you, and that's why they have to prescribe it. So when I'm talking to my coders and educating them, or I'm brought in externally as an auditor, these are the things that I mention. Think outside the box. Know your code sets. Know your guidelines for each area of the revenue cycle. Because it affects not only your job, it affects the physician being able to provide accurate care if he can't get paid, right? It also affects the patient. Can they get the services they need? Are they going to go somewhere else, right? Um, so those are the things that we want to think about when we're looking at all these areas. So we've gone from LCDs to reimbursement to prior authorizations and then also into evaluation management today. So it's all connected, isn't it? So I want to really encourage everyone out there to take the due diligence to learn about these, these areas of reimbursement about coverage, and realize that we're in an era we can't always um, have direct care. We can't always have out-of-pocket payments. We have to rely on these insurance payments, but we can do it effectively if we are proactive. And I encourage you to take advantage of technology. Um, Here at OncoSpark, I am the education director, as you know. Um, We're really working hard to create software solutions for the healthcare community to improve accuracy before the claim goes out. That includes prior authorization tools to make you more efficient. So maybe you do have 
an internal area in your EMR that you tell it, okay, this procedure needs authorization. And that flags it for you, right? But then maybe you do the authorization and you forget to check back on it. Well, the nice thing about Offparency, our new software that we are so excited about that has been backed by Microsoft uh, recently for startups, we are excited about this software because it helps you track those authorizations, it reminds you to follow up, it gives you that accurate policy information connected right into the software. Um, you can get right to the payer, you can get the eligibility, you can see what they're covered for, um, and it's such a great tool. And you can even do estimated um, cost and provide that estimate for your patient. So it's a great tool all in one to kind of have your prior authorization staff have a tool at their disposal that can help them be more accurate and proactive be on top of those authorizations. So before anything goes out the door or before a procedure gets ordered, even if it's ordered, it's on the schedule, they can tell you, okay, it's not ready yet. They can be proactive and say, we need to push this surgery out a little longer. The patient is going to be okay with that most of the time if it's going to mean the difference between them getting it covered and non-covered, right? That's important. Stop writing off denials for authorizations unnecessarily. It's, it's costing and it's such waste. So instead of getting rid of your coders, these people trying to bring money in for you, try to think of the areas of waste that we can prevent these things from happening. And there's also software out there, you know, to help with the coders, right? We know we're not going to replace your coders. Maybe some of them we, we, you, you may have to let go because of cost, but maybe you can facilitate that with other technology services. So Code Interceptor, we've just created that. It's a great software that really highlights the importance of having coverage policies, having payer guidance right there in this tool. It's gonna to filter in your codes, it's gonna check for bundles, it's gonna check for modifiers, uh, policies for ICD-10, different things that are going to help you understand the true cost and the data that is affected. So if you know that you build these routinely, it's gonna tell you, okay, this is why you can't build these together. This is the cost reimbursement. This is, of course, the effect on your on your revenue if you do it this way. Um, and this, of course, is the difference in, in payment for these procedures. So you understand the full picture. You have a revenue snapshot right in front of you before it goes out the door. So great things that are happening here at OncoSpark. And as the official education uh, company for OncoSpark, Ozark Institute is always here to educate uh, proactively and retrospectively if needed to help with audits, to help with consulting. We are here for you and your practices to improve your revenue. So I want to thank you for listening today. As always, our goal is to educate. Knowledge is power. The knowledge you gain today will make you powerful tomorrow. Never stop learning and never stop growing. This has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. I want to shout out again to our sponsors, OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company doing great things in the field of technology. And of course, our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then. The team at OncoSpark offers a unique opportunity to grow your career in the business of medicine through their virtual specialty conference series. 
The reality of attending conferences in person is constantly changing. We give you the opportunity to learn virtually from industry leaders in top specialties, such as obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, cardiology, oncology, and orthopedics. We present timely industry topics to help you navigate regulatory guidelines, best practices in coding, billing, and practice management from the experts in the field. Whether you are interested in becoming the go-to expert in your field, provide additional knowledge for your education program, or you're ready to dive into other specialties, we have you covered. We hope to see you at our 2022 events.